So in this second talk, um, I will be talking about how to stay connected with people that, that we have lost um, um, without becoming indoctrinated. Right? It's a kind of a funny line. And so really what this last talk is is a little bit of a sneak peek into the, into the next book. So bear with me. This is a talk still somewhat under construction. Um, but I'm going to leave time for your questions, which I'm really uh, looking forward to. Since 2015, we in the Christian church have experienced a seismic shift in what it means to be a Christian. It's not that the building has changed. Um, it's not that the building has collapsed. Um, it, something happened in 2015 that put the gospel on a collision course with the creation ordinance. And that thing was the 2015 Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage. And the reason that that was a thing, because you might say, oh, Rosaria, you're just such a reactionary. I mean, the reason that's a thing is because you can't just add gay marriage without adding an idea, an ideology, a doctrine, a religion about what it means to be human. So either Freud is right, which is what our Supreme Court decided in 2015, and what it means to be human is that you are a sexual, quote-unquote, sexual being whose desires are all morally good, and there's a spectrum of objects for which you might find outlet for those desires. Those are all morally good, and it can be organized by an alphabet soup of LGBTQ plus the plus sign is there because it never stops right you know like i started i you know i started this conversation and there are what 72 genders and probably by the time we all leave for lunch there's going to be 107 and you know what i'm saying i, I mean it it's just it but it's a very freudian idea that who you are is ontologically determined it is it is inherently you who you are is determined by how you feel. Okay, so that is what Freud believed. That is what Darwin certainly believed. And that is now what the law of the land believes. But, but uh, 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 Christians, and I mean, I, I don't mean almost Christian feminists. I mean Christians, like the kind that are going to go to heaven and, you know, I mean it. Like, you know, those Christians. Well, you have to be, you have to like define your terms these days. Um, know that the... What determines your humanity is God himself, and specifically it is found in the creation ordinance. It is found in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And so if you, we now live in a world where um, LGBTQ understandings of personhood are on a collision course with 
the creation ordinance. And if you want to know why it feels so uncomfortable, that's why. Okay, it's not you, it's not menopause, it's not, you know, I mean, like, those things are uncomfortable, but it's not that. It really, it's, it's really happening, and it's happening in real time, and God loves you and values you so much that he put you on earth during this seismic shift, okay? That's because he knows you can handle this. Um, you have to do some things, you have to make sure you're, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to do. But anyway, you know. Um, so in the, the book, so the book I'm writing is about five, the five lies of our anti-Christian age that have, um, that unfortunately have found their way into some evangelical churches. And the five lies are really simple. Homosexuality is normal. Um, pagan spirituality is kinder than biblical Christianity. Feminism is good for the church and the world. Transgenderism is normal. And modesty is an old-fashioned burden which serves male dominance and holds women back and should be replaced with exhibitionism, especially on Twitter. <laughs> I don't have any strong opinions. <laughs> um, but this is the world we live in. And um, as I'm sitting here from my position as somebody who lived as a lesbian, who worked... Um, in queer theory, who was one of the first realm of tenured radicals in the United States, who has a bookshelf of critical theory. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think I've been dropped on my head. I, I, I think I have a window into this. I, I, you know, and, and I don't think um, that this is a slippery slope argument. Total depravity has gravity to it. Um, and you would know that as you read through your Bible. So I've lost friends to these lies. You've lost friends to these lies. Some of us have prodigal children who are deep in these lies. And I hung on to these lies for a really long time. I know that they are virulent. Um, and so I want to approach this. Uh, I want to approach our time together, our, our concluding time together, and how to stay connected to people who believe these lies without being indoctrinated. Now, we might need to ask a few questions first just to situate this. Why in the world did the evangelical church fall off the edge? Like, here, I can understand why the world believes all of those lies. I, I, for, I, I wouldn't expect them to not. But why, why is this in the church now? Like, why is the church confused? I understand why the church might be burdened, might be hard-strapped, might, might be persecuted. That I understand. But why did the church, especially the evangelical church, especially big evangelical churches, I walked into this church, I was so glad to see this size. This is a good size. Your pastor can handle this size. This is good. But why why? And you know, you, you know this because you are in a good church, and you know that you have a watchman. You have a faithful pastor, right? He dutifully prepares uh, sermons. He prepares sermons that prepare you for battle. Um, faithful pastors and watchmen prepare their sermons in private study and prayer, and they work very sacrificially with their elders. They practice church discipline. They work with tight budgets. There's no glamour. There's no glory. Um, 
God gives blessing and increase, hardship, tests of faith, covenant children are born, they come to faith, we, we watch baptisms, we have the Lord's Supper, we memorize scripture, we read our catechism, um, faithful pastors remind the church that we are the church militants until Jesus returns, and only then are we the church triumphants. Right? We're not the church triumphant right now. That's what the megachurch thinks. We're going to get bigger and better and bigger and better. Oh, I'm sure you will. But it's just not going to glorify Jesus. Um, we commit ourselves to prayer and fasting. We, make, uh, we have potluck suppers. We take care of babies and old ladies. Um, there's no frills. Wars come. Pestilence comes. And we keep doing this. Um, but other watchmen um, have a different playbook. All right, They acted more like the Greek mythological hunter Narcissus, and they love their reflection in the Twitter mirror more than anything else. They record how many followers they have, nice and not nice. And um, their sermons are um, often prepared by not a faithful man doing battle with the forces of darkness, but a team of people who function a little bit like the Iowa caucus. So, in other words, too many watchmen, as it turned out, are actually wolves. And I say that because that's a real problem. Okay, we have a wolf problem. All right, we have a pest problem. I was sharing with my friend Hope. I've been trying to get a lot of edits done on this book, which means I've had a couple of sleepless nights, and I now understand how my 18-pound overweight, obviously overweight, toothless old cat kills mice. You know, because I've never been up all night being able to observe, uh, you know, how he does this, okay? You know, I didn't know we had a mouse problem, um, but, you know, we have a, a wolf problem. And so when people are lost to lies, it's often because they're, they're under dangerous preaching. They're under false preaching. It's, I, I'm just going to say it that boldly. So those are things to think about for yourself and for your loved ones. People who tell me that they go to a certain church because, you know, their friends are there. Well, this is no social club. Okay, so acceptance and approval. That was something that Ken Smith, very early on, 1997, I'm an out lesbian feminist activist uh, writing a book against the religious right, and I think of a pastor neighbor friend as my unpaid research assistant, so of course I'm reading, I'm willing, I'm willing to read the Bible with him. I mean, you know, why not, right? Um, and the first thing he says to me is, Rosaria, I can accept you without approving you. And that was a fascinating paradigm, and so I want to talk about this now. Acceptance means, means living in reality and not fantasy. If your daughter calls herself a lesbian, it means that you actually accept this. If your son calls himself Matilda, it means that you accept that that's really what he believes. He is really living a, in a dangerous state of confusion and deception, and his confusion is his reality right now. It's not truth, but it's real. There's a difference sometimes. Acceptance is the first step in seeing the person you love in the sin pattern in which she is trapped. All right? We need to live our Christian life with our eyes wide open. 
Acceptance, however, does not mean believing her interpretation of how she got here or what it means. Acceptance does not include believing that Rex is really Matilda, because he is not. Acceptance does not include being manipulated by the therapist who asks, would you rather have a dead son or a living daughter? Apparently, apparently these lesbian therapists have never met Christian moms, okay? Because Matthew 5.30 is a good reminder that Jesus calls us, calls, calls us to cut off sin. And transgenderism is many, many things, but one of the things it very clearly is is the sin of envy. You are not to covet your neighbor's wife or house or cow or gender. You're not to do it. Now, if there are medical concerns in addition to that, deal with them. But there's a huge spiritual problem that will not be dealt with by doing the things we're currently doing. Approval would mean that you would give the whole situation your blessing. Approval means more than loving your daughter and knowing that she's in sin. You should, of course you should do that. It'd be barbaric not to do that. But approval means calling her sin by another name. It means calling her sin grace, blessing, or illness. And it would also mean compartmentalizing your Christian life, being one kind of person Sunday morning from 10 to 12 and another every other time during the week. Approval means denying Christ, and it means denying your responsibility to carry the cross. And let's turn now to Luke 14, 26, because it means getting Luke 14, 26 all wrong. Um, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Hate in the Greek means love less. Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean hate the way your, you know, modern American dictionary. It means love less. It means you got to love Jesus more than your daughter in order to love her well. You must, you must love Jesus more. Um, so for a Christian to approve of sin is a sin. It's a serious sin. The difference between acceptance and approval is the fine line that a Christian who loves someone trapped by these, by these lies must navigate. Now, I hope you know from my hospitality talk that I believe hospitality is, it's a, your house is like an outpost from the church, okay? It's not that the Butterfields have a hospitality ministry. No, we have a church. We go to a church. That church is owned by the Lord Jesus Christ, and our house is an outpost of that, all right? And, and likewise, where your son or daughter or your loved one is worshiping, 
will make all the difference in the world. My friend Hope and I were driving here today and we were just, we were nostalgic, you know, nostalgic for the days when atheists knew they were atheists. Remember those good old days? Remember before you had like gay Christian conferences and things like, atheists just knew, we just knew we were atheists. We were happy to be atheists and to tell you that we were. But now it's gotten murkier. So, so one of the things that you need to know is that if your son or daughter has a wolf for a pastor, that is going to be a lot harder than if you have an atheist gay child. All right, that's going to be like five million times harder. Not too hard for Jesus, but you know, in war, you got to know who your enemy is. So, so um, false teachers proclaim half the gospel. Saving faith, however, requires the whole gospel, law and grace together. Truly helping your lost prodigal means using the law of God to extend the love of God. Trying to love the lost apart from the law results only in what's called false beneficence. The moral law of God reflects the perfect righteousness of God. The law acts as a schoolmaster, driving us to Christ. We are not justified by the law, but we are often very helpfully constrained by it. The moral law of God restrains evil for everybody, not just believers. If you know all this, and yet you have serious concerns about your pastor, okay, let's say your whole family is maybe in a place you ought not be, schedule a meeting with him, talk with the elders, ask pointed questions, take notes, and line up his answers with the word of God. One of the things that we are seeing is what happened in the 1920s. Uh, specifically in the PCUSA denomination. In the 1920s, in the PCUSA, Protestant liberalism entered the church. Now, what happened is the moms and dads who were already in this church could filter what the liberal pastor was saying. And so what liberalism tends to do is it uses the same vocabulary of the Bible with a, with a very radically different dictionary. And so what happened in the PCUSA is that the moms and dads, you know, the mothers and fathers of Israel, they, they could get through this, and they lost the whole generation behind them. Okay, and I am seeing this today. Okay, now maybe I'm just talking to the choir, because maybe you all just worship here, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Sorry, we're here. Okay, and that's fine. But I mean, I talk to people all the time who are in big mega churches with a lot of waffly preaching that's more, it looks more like the Iowa caucus than anything you'd find in the Bible, and yet mom and dad are faithful Christians, and I'm watching their children be led by the, you know, neck away from the faith. So don't think... Just because you can, you, you know, you perceive you, and maybe you can, can handle bad preaching um, or waffly preaching or just unfaithfulness that somehow your children are going to be able to withstand that. They won't. That, at least historically, they never have been able to. That is how churches become one generation churches. Okay. It's, it's all, it's, it's really simple. It happens all over the place. So it's important to remember that the moral law is as binding to you as it is to your prodigal, all right? So if you are asking your prodigal to, you know, give up everything she loves, lose her friends, lose her house, um, lose her whatever, you know, you need to see how important it is that you are faithfully living that out yourself, all right? You yourself 
are, are asking this of your prodigal from a posture of total devotion to what God has called you to. And so if you're worshiping in a church because your friends are there, but you know you shouldn't be, you really have no business. You know, I mean, pray, but you know, you don't, you're, 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 you don't have the, the, the street cred right now. And I don't think you have the blessing either because God doesn't want you to mess around with worship. Okay. He does, he does toying with his worship is what gets, you know, people in the old Testament fried like a, you know, like a, like a very crispy potato, (laughs) just saying. Um, so hospitality and mercy ministry are examples of the moral law of God. And, um, and, and if you have somebody who's in a waffly church, you need to fully remember, you know, John, I'm sorry, I think it's fourteen fifteen, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, I have a little note in my Reformation study Bible that says something really interesting about this. It says the moral law of God revealed in scripture is always binding upon us. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified, not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to the law. To love Christ is to keep Christ's commandments. To love God is to obey his law. And so I say that to you because I suspect you know this, but if you spend, you know, two and a half seconds with a prodigal who goes to one of these liberal churches, you're going to hear something very different. And so it's important that you yourself are grounded, fully grounded in the purity and the power of the word of God. And that means at the very least that you are in it daily, but also that you flee to it in times of crisis. Now, and I just, you know, I'm going to step on some toes, but but if you flee to man-made worship music in times of crisis because it makes you feel better, Satan's really happy about that. I'm just telling you. I mean, I'm not saying that man-made worship music is always bad or always good, but the power is in God's word. Okay, the power and the truth is in God's word, not in man-made worship music. And there's a lot of it that's pretty waffly. Um, I've spent a lot of time, not anymore, but I used to speak at those big Christian conferences where sometimes the worship band would play first and I would think, would it be more helpful to scrap this talk and just rebuke everybody about what we just heard? (laughs) Or like, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe that would be the most helpful thing to do. So just be mindful that you are fleeing to the source in your time. Who's going, to hold, who's going to hold your ankles as you're dangling over the cliff? It's not your favorite Christian, you know, artist, okay? It's the Lord Jesus. Go to his word. So acceptance is, though, a great kindness, okay? So you, if you have a prodigal, know that acceptance is a great kindness. Um, and I learned this from Ken and Floyd Smith years, decades ago, um, um, acceptance meant dealing protectively and gently with me. Um, it involved listening and caring for and praying and sharing God's word. And so this is a different, you know, that was 1997. This is different now. You might need to think about, if you have a prodigal and you, you're like, well, but I do all those things. 
You know, you don't want to be like the rich young ruler, but Lord, I do all this. I'm, you know, you know, okay, maybe so, but maybe on social media, you don't. Like, you know, seriously, like, okay, maybe that's how you act in the living room with, you know, with your daughter, but, but maybe that's actually not what your social media profile looks like. You would not be the first mother of a prodigal who needs to get off of social media entirely in a sacrificial effort to have a clear line of focused conversation with your daughter. There are two ways that social media has really hurt mothers of prodigals. One is, without even intending to, you say things that will offend them. You don't even know about it. You're like, what? How could that offend anybody? Well, it did. But the other is you become so focused on what she's saying about you that you are not praying in faith. Um, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, and um, I, I, I'm I'm going to read it in the I'm, I have the ESV with me today, but I want you to know what the King James says because it's an interesting kind of an interesting thing. I write I'm writing this book with Crossway, so I have to quote from the ESV, but then I'm fine. I'm always making these little notes about what the King James says because it's interesting to me that um, that. The word truth in the King James is, is rendered faithful in the ESV. Now, I understand what they mean, but in a, in a liberal world that likes to talk about faith and everything, it's just a little bit fuzzy. But this one is a little fuzzy, too, in the ESV, but I'm going to read it, and then I'll translate it. This is 2925. Um, and I'm not opposed to the ESV. I don't know. It's going to come across that way, but I'm really not. Um, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. What the, what the King James and the New King James will say is the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever fears the Lord is safe. And I like fear better because I think what happens is there's a lot of manipulation. Your prodigal says, if you don't, then you will never see me again. Okay, and it's really tempting to be afraid. I mean, it's almost natural. It's as natural as breathing to have an, an initial response of fear that you will never see your daughter again. And yet this verse is telling you that that's a snare. Okay, it's natural, but it's a snare. And a snare is an instrument of execution from which you don't emerge. Okay, and since you may be the only person praying in faith for your prodigal, you can't get caught in a snare right now. Okay, you are too needed. You can't get caught in a snare. So as hard as it is, when you are sucker punched by the lesbian therapist who says, well, would you rather have a dead son or a living daughter, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or the daughter who says, I'm never coming home. You're never going to see me again. You're never going to see your grandchildren. It's very tempting to fear that. Don't. That's a snare. That, that's an instrument of execution from which you will never emerge. Fear God. Fear God. Um, now, so, so get off social media because you're going to be offended by the things they say, and they're going to be offended by the things you say, and it's going to limit your ability to both communicate and also to pray in hope and in joy. Because you need to remember something that Satan doesn't want you to remember. 
you are praying for a prayed for child of the covenant. And that makes all the difference in the world, the whole world. So it, it means that you need to be sharp for this battle. And social media is going to make you dull and scared and somewhat inept. Um, so here are some principles to apply as you seek to accept without approving your prodigal. One, don't think that just because your prodigal is an adult that you are no longer parenting. Now, you will be your child's parent until the day the Lord takes you home. We must become adept at pointing our adult children to the gospel as the only means of avoiding God's ultimate punishment. And sometimes it just comes to that. I know that we love to talk about the hope in the gospel, but sometimes, you know, I mean, we were the spanking spoon generation, moms. It, did, it doesn't stop. Don't give up now. <laughs> Two, if your prodigal has declared war against reality and believes that she is non-binary or whatever, whatever the new word is, it'll be different by the time I finish this talk. Ask her to define these new terms, okay? Your daughter is living in a dystopic world of science fiction. You never wanted to write that story anyway. You don't need to get a PhD in all of this new vocabulary. You need to be sanctified in your knowledge and sanctified in your ignorance. So if your child's going to come to you and say, I'm non-binary, you're just going to say, um, Jill, what does that mean? Be sanctified in your ignorance. You don't need a PhD in this. Number three, you need to know biblical doctrine better than you have. And what I mean by doctrine is you need to have a systematic way of understanding how big questions are answered biblically. And this is a different method than most of most women are trained in in women's Bible studies. That's not bad. That's really good training. So I don't mean to, I'm not being disrespectful to that. But sometimes the training we get in women's Bible studies feels more like a multiple choice exam. You know, like you go in and you know we're talking about First Thessalonians, for example. You know, you know the world that we're talking in. Systematic theology is a huge world. It takes the big, wide world, and it shapes it by questions, and it provides biblical proof texts. So, so now, I would suggest ask your pastor, like, you know, what is the most accessible or the most useful uh, systematic theology book I can read. And, and maybe, probably if you're in a Baptist church, he's going to say probably Grudem, right? And if you're in a Presbyterian church, or, or if, he's a more, if he's a Reformed Baptist, he's going to say Grudem, and the Westminster of Con Confession of Faith, skip the baptism chapter. <laughs> um, and if you're, if you're Presbyterian, he'll probably say um, the Westminster or um, the Heidelberg. See, those catechisms were written during times of profound, tumultuous attack against the church, where God's people needed to, to, to be able to be not just literate in their Bible knowledge, which is what I think you get, you get good, solid literacy in your women's Bible study, but they needed to be fluent. You know, my own denomination started when um, in Scotland, uh, there was supposed to be a Reformed pastor preaching a Reformed sermon, and instead, 
Instead, the state sent an, a, a government priest who started to read the Book of Common Prayer. And a woman named Jenny Geddes got up from her stool. Now, you'll be happy to know she didn't say a word. She never broke any kind of commandment. She, she was never a woman who would speak in church. She just got up from her chair and threw the stool at the man's head. Okay, so I... Part, and this is how my denomination started. So, so, but she was a good woman. She did not speak. She did not preach. Um, but other people got the point, and they were like, oh, yeah. And they drove that guy out of town. Okay, and then they got a Reformed pastor in there to preach the gospel. So, you know, at some point, systematic theology is your very polite way of knowing uh, uh, to whom, against whom you throw the stool upon which you're sitting. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. It's helpful when the liberal church throws these wacky questions to you. It's helpful when they, you know, half-truths are extremely seductive. I mean, I, I, it's, that's how Satan, you know, you know, Satan came with a nice half-truth to Eve. So those half-truths, so anyway, you need to know your systematic theology and your biblical doctrine. Ask your pastor. He'll probably be really thrilled. I mean, my husband is always really thrilled when people just come and say, hey, I want to learn systematic theology. <laughs> you know? um, um, make sure if you are not in a faithful biblical church, you get to one fast and you give up all your excuses about your friends and nostalgia and how you planted the rose bushes at the, you know, I just, just, I will slap you if you come to me with that probably. Um, just, you know. In love, in love. Um, you, need, you need more help than you think. Okay, you are more vulnerable than you believe. Church is not a social club. It's training for war. And like it or not, the theater of this spiritual war has become your living room. All right, no time to mess around. And if you don't know how to discern a good church from a weak one, I actually can recommend a couple of resources for you. Um, but, but basically, here's what a good, a, a good church is going to have. These three, and, and it's going to be present. Like, you will have seen it. It's not like this is a mystery, okay? The word will be faithfully preached, okay? The word of God. That means that you don't have the four-year-olds up here during worship doing uh, interpretive dance, okay? And calling that worship, Okay, it is the word of God. It is faithfully preached. It is faithfully preached every Lord's Day. When the four-year-olds want to dance, they can dance. It's not on the Lord's Day, and it's not, it's not in lieu of the sermon that you need. Okay, so the word of God is faithfully preached. The sacraments are faithfully practiced. Right? If you are in a church that has not practiced the Lord's Supper because of fear of COVID, Go find a church. I mean, this one right here, you know, go do it. This is, this is, the sacraments are the living uh, presentation of the gospel. We are not called to not practice the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the third is church discipline. And if you've never seen a church discipline case in your life as a Christian, something's wrong because there are wolves in the church. When my husband first started pastoring, the church was very, very weak. And I was talking to Ken Smith, who is the pastor that, you know, the Lord used in my own conversion. And I was saying, Ken, something's wrong in this church. Something's wrong. And, and he said, well, you know, do you go to prayer meeting? I said, yep, every Wednesday, every Wednesday we have prayer meeting. He said, well, why don't you just pray 
that the Lord would remove the wolves from the church. Because, I mean, it's not that my husband doesn't want to practice church discipline. It's that we weren't even sure where this was coming from. So, okay. So I, I, I went to church and I prayed, you know, I prayed Wednesday night that the Lord would remove the wolves from the church. And sure enough, it just, it, everything exploded wide open. And literally somebody jumped from his seat like he sat on a tack. And the next day I came home from homeschool co-op and he was in the living room talking to Kent about how he thinks it's probably important that women stop praying at prayer meeting, you know. You know, those, those women. But you know what? It turned out that there is something really serious that was going on with this guy. And he was actually one of our elders. And it led to um, a situation where... Um, I mean, he was disciplined and ultimately excommunicated. It was a very big deal. It was not, it's not, you know, it wasn't a library fine, believe me. Um, but I mean, it was very, it was, it was a powerful thing to see and to be at the ground floor of, right? Um, and so I'm not, you know, we don't love the purpose of church discipline. Church discipline has two purposes. It is to, um, it is to call a sinner back to faith, but it is also to put the fear of God and everybody else watching. It's both of those things. The evangelical church wants you to think it's only about calling a sinner back to Christ. No, it's about to put the fear of God in us because you know what? We are all capable of the most heinous sin. Every single one of us right here is capable of doing the very thing that she is so quick to say, I would never do that. That is how powerful sin is. And then finally, you need to pray and you need to gather as wide of a, of a group of prayer warriors as possible. And if you are ashamed to do that, that's a sin and you need to repent. So if, now I'm not saying that you need to advertise every, you know, private detail of this, whatever the situation is. But if you're afraid to ask for prayer because you think it might ruin your daughter's reputation, um, Satan's got your ear. Okay, and, and you need to you need to wake up. Prayer is the secret weapon. And, you know, it's Satan is the only one I know of who wants to keep you from prayer and keep you from repentance. And so if you have anybody else in your life who is trying to keep you from prayer or keep you from repentance, that's really serious. All right. That's a wake up call. And then uh, you also need to go boldly to the throne of grace, okay, and daily. Um, this means that you're repenting, though, of your sin, not your prodigal sin. See, you didn't do it, okay? Whatever happened, it is not your fault. And I can say that so confidently because I know that you are not powerful enough to redirect the cosmology and all of God's providence, okay? You may be a very powerful woman, but that's just not on the skill sheet, okay? I know that. So you need to repent of your sins, not your prodigal sins. You're not to take on your prodigal sins as yours, okay? Satan wants you to feel at fault because you have a prodigal so a child. Uh, Satan wants you to feel pity, because you have a prodigal child. He wants you to think it's all your fault. He even wants you to think that God is punishing you. And he wants you to look at other families in the church and covet what they have. And nothing that comes from Satan is helpful or true or could be stewarded, you know, to the glory of God. That's nonsense, okay? So none of this is true. 
okay? If all the other Christians in your family have gone apostate and have bought into a false theology, that is not your fault. You did not do this. But here's the deal. You have a very big burden right now because you're the only one praying for them in that way. You know what I mean by that way, the, the tears and sweat way. So you need to not be taken off course. And remember, you are called to the throne of grace, not the throne of condemnation. Okay? I know you have sinned. I have too. I know it. And I know it's really tempting to think that Jesus can't understand your sin because he's so holy. And so you'd really rather go to a self-help group of all those other angry moms over there who fall into the sin every minute of the day. Don't do that. It is because Jesus is holy that he can understand your sin. It is because Jesus is holy that he is not condemning you for your sin. It is because Jesus is holy that he can forgive you a hundred times a day for your sin. So you go to the throne of grace, not to the throne of condemnation, and you keep your sin clear from your prodigals. And if you have been coveting other people's happy children, repent. Repent. God gave you a very important calling. If you have a prodigal child, that's a very big calling. That Nobody else can do that job. You can't not have that job, according to God. So you, you do it. And then finally, acceptance means not telling your prodigal lies and not buying into her false theology. Um, that might mean a time of physical separation, right? I mean, that sometimes happens with prodigals, and that's very hard. But you need to remember that God actually has always loved and known that child better than you have. And so you need to trust that the Lord is not going to make this forever. Um, but being useful to your prodigal requires that you fear God, not him. Um, don't fear your prodigal. Don't fear what he writes about you on Twitter or what he says to his friends. And don't be distracted by the fear of man. Um, and this is where it's really helpful to develop your own method of Bible study on this. Okay, it's really good to have a great Bible teacher and to open those books. But if you are in the crosshairs of this place, you need to get yourself a nice spanking new spiral notebook. Put the topic on that is your topic. What is it? Fear, shame, guilt. What's holding you back? And then you need to old old school is you go to those concordance. It's like this big, right? You could like do bicep curls with it if you had two of them. Um, and you list, you, you, just, you just do a word search for every Bible verse that has those in it. And you study them and you, you, you memorize them and you, and you meditate on them. Or you can, if you've got some fancy Bible software, it'll pull that up quickly as well. But don't, don't, don't deny yourself the opportunity to write your own Bible study. And I don't mean write it to go publish it for you. You know, this is your moment. This is your crosshair. Maybe, maybe the Lord is going to work through you more than he's going to work through a, a Bible teacher. Um, so do it. And, um, and also don't, uh, don't, uh, don't shortchange yourself. You know, um, there's a difference between reading the word of God and studying the word of God. You need to be a student of the word of God. And that's slow 
and it, it takes time. And, but you know that you, you are, you are the, the mothers of Israel, right? Everything you've ever done has tied you up and taken time. Okay. Everything. So don't deny yourself this. So just some practical things, some questions that come to me a lot. Um, you know, do I attend the gay wedding of my son? Um, that's, that's a question that I hear a lot. Um, now, you know, my, my first advice for all of these questions is talk to your pastors, talk to your elders, and, and spend a lot of time praying. And the reason is prayer and counsel prepare you to do the thing that God wants you to do, okay? The Christian life is not a multiple choice exam. So it's not like, you know, once you know what to do, oh, you know, I should have had a V8, now it's just so easy. No, you still, you know, the, the Psalms are about training your hands for war, right? Training takes time. So, but, but I would say, no, you can't attend the gay wedding of your son and maintain a faithful witness for Christ. Fear of your son's rejection or hatred is real. And for that reason, you will need to spend many hours of prayer under the direction of your pastor or elders. Um, and... Um, but your only protection is the fear of God. And you have no idea how much your son will need you to, to fear God more than man. He will need you to do that. He's not going to thank you now, but he will later, hopefully, you know, but he, but it's just true, right? So the word of God knows your needs better than you do. All right. So numbers, another question, um, my daughter and her lesbian partner are having a baby by artificial insemination. They want me to attend the baby shower. Should I? Um, well, I would say as Christians, we love life. We cherish life. We cherish life no matter how in God's providence he brings that life into the world. My, I've been a very grateful mother of, uh, four adopted children. Um, and so this child needs a Christian grandma. That's what I would say. Um, and there's nothing preventing you from celebrating her life. Um, um, question number three, my son and his quote-unquote husband want to come home for Christmas, but my other adult children, who are all strong Christians, don't want them to come because they don't want to have to explain their relationship to the grandchildren. This problem comes to me a lot. I mean, I haven't ranked these, and Hope would have to be the one to do the like tally marks, but this problem really comes to me a lot, and it's a really interesting thing. You kind of wonder if there isn't a little bit of the pro the parable of the prodigal son going on here. You know, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just. So what I would say, I mean, I, you know, obviously pray, but you know, I would say that if your unbelieving son wants to be in your presence kick out all the Christians and spend time with the heathen, <laughs> okay? I mean, if the rest of your adult children are all in the Lord and their children are doing fine, have them have Thanksgiving at somebody else's house that year and you preach the gospel to that heathen that you love. Um, so, I mean, but I think it just means not getting into lockstep around holidays, and I think that's really hard. I think for, especially for women, you know, we, there's a lot of expectation about what we're going to do on the holidays and you know, that can be good and it can be a snare. So be ready to be flexible on some of that. But yes, if your unbelieving child wants to be in your presence, make sure that he walks away knowing the gospel again, even if he's heard it a million times. Um, um, my 12-year-old daughter wants to start taking testosterone and wants me to call her Jack. Her teachers at her government school support this. 
They've told me that they're going to call Child Protective Services if I don't comply. What should I do? Now, this is a recent one that I get very often. So I'm going to say two things. I'm going to start with, I'll start nicely. Okay, if you haven't read Abigail Schreier's book, in, uh, Irreversible Damage, read it. Abigail Schreier is a Wall Street Journal reporter. She's Jewish. She's not a Christian. You're not getting Christian advice. But she will answer this question. And she's going to actually answer it the same way I will. Get your kid out of government school. Okay, done. We're not in a place anymore where that's working or that's going to be helpful for you. And if you need help, talk to your pastor, talk to your elders. But there is no way right now in government schools, the transgender movement's ideology is not part of sex education where you have some ability to manage what your child hears. It is in the anti-bullying campaign. You cannot remove your child from that. Okay? I know that sounds really harsh, so you can all complain to me later, but you will thank me if this... Just don't even think, if you are in a crisis, that the school is going to back the parents. Okay, it's not. And if you don't like to hear it from me, you'd prefer to hear um, a Jewish atheist uh, Wall Street Journal reporter read it in Schreier's book. All right? These are the goons. And they're not going to take nicely your request that you would like to parent your daughter. For the sake of your child, don't send her back to that. Um, all right, uh, number five. My son is willing to come home for Thanksgiving, but only if he and his boyfriend can stay at our home, what should I do? And so my advice is to make separate accommodations uh, if you have a large home or two guest rooms. But if not, let your son know how much you're looking forward to his visit, but uh, they can't stay at your house. You know, there are hotels. You're not, you're not actually in charge of what, how people arrange their lives in a hotel room. They're adults. But, you know, I would say that's a, that would be a firm line. Um, so even though it doesn't seem like it, it really isn't all about LGBTQ. That, that's very much what a prodigal will want you to think, but it isn't. Your prodigal's insistence that the LGBTQ world is his life center reveal something very important. Um, the ideology of sexual perversion has become a religion. Okay? We are no longer in a world where we're talking about secular and sacred. We're talking about competing versions of the sacred. And that's why people get so mad. Okay? That's why people are intolerant of, of any kind of shifting on this. Um, a really helpful website to explain some of this is called Truth Exchange. It's T-R-U-T-H-X and then C-H-A-N-G-E. Peter Jones runs that. Um, and he's been studying paganism, actually, for about 40 years. He's an older professor, pastor. Um, so there is a difference between worship and recognition. So don't take the bait. All right, your focus is on loving your prodigal well, praying fervently for the glory of God. This requires listening to your prodigal and studying God's word. It requires remembering that you are running a marathon, not a sprint. Focus your energy and your stamina on your spiritual health, your prayer time, um, the vitality of your own faith. 
But many, many of us feel like we just kind of woke up one day and here we are at the ground floor of the Tower of Babel and we don't understand why there's all this rubble and, you know, what in the world happened. And we need to remember that we need better biblical models. I mean, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, you know, you've got Lot and you've got the thief on the cross. True, that's not a model for how to live. The thief on the cross is a model for how to die. And Lot is a pathetic figure. You do not, you, you do not, uh, Lot could not lead his family. He, could, he, could, he couldn't even save himself. He needed the Lord to actually literally pick him up like, a, like cats pick up mice, I learned. Um, but we need, the, we need, the, we need the, the, the faith of Paul and Nehemiah and Ezra and Daniel and David and Ruth and Esther. And so we need to really focus there. So it's important to remember that God is not surprised by this. That this isn't, you know, sometimes we talk about this like this is, the word I keep hearing, unprecedented, unprecedented. Yes and no. Okay, yeah, unprecedented for us, absolutely. But not really for God. God has placed the church intentionally in the midst of a fallen and evil world on purpose. He puts faithful churches and faithful Christians at the ground zero of the Tower of Babel on purpose. And the purpose is to be distinct from the world, to be different. And Psalm 110, um, uh, line two, is really powerful for this. Um, The Lord sends forth from Zion, which means the church, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. John Calvin says this about that line. God's will is that Christ's kingdom should be encompassed with many enemies. His design being to keep us in a state of constant warfare. Therefore, it becomes us to exercise patience and meekness and assured of God's aid, boldly to consider the rage of the world as nothing. You are boldly to consider the rage of your prodigal daughter as nothing. You are boldly to consider the rage of your impending job loss as nothing. This is a bold claim. This is God's promise as well as his command to the faithful church. The rage of the whole world is nothing. That means that mayhem can hurt you, but it can't alter God's good plans for you. God uses everything. He even uses other people's sin sinlessly. This means that the rage of your unbelieving daughter, her lesbian partner, the entire pride parade is nothing. We are to rule in the midst of our enemies. Even when it feels like no one is listening, that is not true. And so that is all the more reason for the church to come together as the family, to have seasons, deep seasons, even like this one, where we just come together and we face the hard things and we, we make connections with one another and we hold each other up in times of trouble and we worship God faithfully 
um, because worship still is our secret weapon against all of the fiery dots and the darts of the devil. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we've talked about prodigals, I know, Lord, that each of these prodigals has a dear and blessed name. And I pray, Lord, that as, as women here, that every name on our hearts, uh, that you would carry that name to the throne of grace and that you would redeem and, uh, and cause reconciliation, Lord, both with you and with uh, families. And we love you, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, to be the church militant until we can fully be the church triumphant. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.